0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. So we've been in the New Testament for quite a while, and we're going to switch gears and go to the Old Testament. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then what's next? So that's book number seven in your Bible, okay? I'm going to read the first verse. And then we'll review a little bit in the Bible, what is going on here? So Judges chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? So let's step back there for a second. Let's go even further back before this. Uh, Could I have a brave soul who'd be willing to stand up and tell me What is the very first thing that happens in the Bible back in Genesis chapter one? Can you stand up and tell me? God creates the heavens and the earth. Give it up for Landry, that was great, yeah. Landry, how old are you? Nine, all right. Leave it to a nine-year-old to be the bravest among us, right? Yeah, (laughs) that's great. So the first thing that happens back in Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. And then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebel against the Lord and what's called the fall of man. And creation happens as sin is introduced into the world. And after that, is that me? Uh-huh, it is me. Dave's like, yes, that's you. Yep, it's never Dave's fault back there. It's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> I got to screw this thing in a little more. But the next thing in is Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob. We'll see what's happening here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, hopefully it's still going, Dave. I don't know why it's not screwing in today. It's messing with us. I'll try not to touch it, okay? All right, here we go. So the next thing is to promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph that God is going to uh, use a people, a family line through Abraham to bless the nations. And so as you read the rest of Genesis, it's about those that family. And by the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob and his family and Joseph are living in what nation? Egypt. And that takes us into the book of Exodus because This family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, becomes the Israelites, and they grow and multiply in number, and eventually the Egyptians can't stand them, so they become slaves, and God miraculously leads them out of slavery in Egypt through Moses and Aaron and the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Does that sound a little bit familiar, even if you don't know the Bible very well? He leads them to Mount Sinai and gives them the law, the 10 commandments, and then he has them build the tabernacle and the priestly system and the sacrifices and You read the book of Leviticus. That'll be our next sermon series that Mike really wants me to do on Leviticus. (laughs) And then Numbers and Deuteronomy. And by the end of Deuteronomy, they are standing on the edge of the promised land. God has called them to go to the land of Canaan and, and conquer it, but they haven't really done it yet. And so by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. And then Joshua is his successor. In fact, if you read the book of Joshua chapter one, verse one, it also starts with a very important death. It says, after the death of Moses, God calls Joshua to lead. And so he leads them into the promised land and they have victory after victory. And for the most part, I mean, there's some blips along the radar. It's it's pretty successful. They conquer a lot of the promised land, but not all of it. And so by the end of Joshua, here's what Joshua 24 says. Uh, Verses 14 and 15 says very famously, this is Joshua talking to the Israelites, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And let's read this together. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Sound familiar? And so the Israelites say, yes, we're going to follow the Lord. We're going to take the rest of the land. We're going to be obedient. And that brings us to Judges now, chapter 1, verse 1. All right? So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll start reading at verse 1. Don't worry, I won't read the whole thing and have you stand the whole time. We'll we'll break it up. So it says in verse 1, Oh, by the way, actually, you can be seated. I forgot what I was going to (laughs) say. You can be seated. I know sometimes we forget things, Mike. (laughs) Let me introduce the topic of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, If I were to ask you, what is the definition of success in your life? What would you say? What does it mean for you to have a successful life? And I was thinking about that question, and I was... Thinking about it in relation to companies and organizations, because we all have a definition of success. So how many of you have been to McDonald's before and eaten there? Okay, a few of you. What, what is their definition of success? Well, you may say, well, to make money. That's every business's definition to some degree. But how do they want to make money successfully? Well, they want to be consistent. So if I go to McDonald's in Florida or California or China, hopefully it's similar to our Swiss McDonald's here in Bern, you know? <laughs> At least the menu is. They want to be consistent. The same food you have there is the same here. They want to be kid-friendly. I mean, I'm always amazed everywhere I travel that McDonald's always has a changing table, a changing station. So we often end up at McDonald's on the road because of that. And they want to provide, they take some risks in their menu. So how many of you remember, I think it's called the Lobster. Did it ever come out in your time? Some of you are like, Woof. <laughs> or how many remember Pizza. The McDonald's tried for a stint. Yeah, I don't know if it was called McPizza. So they, McDonald's is not afraid to take a risk because that contributes to their bottom line, which is success. Now, let's think of Chick-fil-A. What is Chick-fil-A? You're like, yes, let's think about that instead of McDonald's. What is Chick-fil-A's <laughs> definition of success? Certainly a profit, but they want to provide outstanding customer service. I mean, we'll go there with our kids, and before we know it, they're like holding our kids and, you know, helping us get seated. It's incredible, kind of the, the customer service they have. By the way, they're not open today. You can't go there. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you apply that to us as a church now, what is our definition of success for you and for me, for people that come here? What, what is your personal definition of success? You ever thought about it? Well, God gives us a pretty clear, I think, even though this is some crazy stories and judges, definition of success that we're going to see today in three statements. And you can really stand this time and stay standing, and I'll read. <laughs> if anything, you stay awake while you stand up and down. That's good. So here we go. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites. So remember, this is before David and Goliath, before King Solomon, before they are united country. They are just twelve tribes that God has called to go into the land. And the Lord answered, Judah, that's one of the tribes, shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, another tribe, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. So when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands and they struck down how many people? 10,000. That's a little bit less than the population of Decatur, to put it in perspective. Struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. We're not quite sure where that's at, north of Jerusalem somewhere. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek, which means the king or lord of Bezek, and they fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him. And what they do to him? They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. So that may seem weird to us, but Judges gets even weirder. Verse 7 <laughs> Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So this pagan king is recognizing that God's justice and God's judgment is coming upon him through the Israelites. Verse 8, the men of Judah then attacked Jerusalem also, and they took it. So this wasn't the capital city yet of Israel. They put the city to the sword, and they set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. Do you know where the western foothills are in Israel? They're in the west. All right. <laughs> Verse 10. <laughs> Just making sure you're still with me. Verse 10. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Shesai, Ahimon, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, so now Caleb is introduced. Remember Caleb? He is one of the 12 spies that Moses sent in along with Joshua to spy out the promised land. And only two of the 12 spies came back with a positive report like, yes, we can take the land. And the rest of the 10 were terrified to death. That's that same Caleb who had faith to trust God. And that was actually allowed to go into the promised land with Joshua. Verse 12, and Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath-sephir. And can you imagine that today, guys? If you go to ask for you know, this, your girlfriend's hand in marriage to, you know, and her dad says, well, oh, I'll give you her hand in marriage if you go, attack the city, defeat it, and take it over. That's what he's asking. <laughs> so verse 13, Othniel, son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. Isn't that romantic, woman? <laughs> verse 14, One day when she came to Othniel... She urged him to ask her father for a field. And when she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. We'll talk more about that story later. Verse 16, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Seminites, so they're partnering again, their fellow Israelites, and they attacked now the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron, those are Philistine cities, each city with its territory, and the Lord was with the men of Judah. So you can be seated now. I'll pause there for a moment. By the way, before I mention and talk about this idea of success, did you catch in verse 17 how it says they totally destroyed the city? Did you catch that? Well, often God will call the Israelites back then when they go into Canaan to go in and totally destroy it and wipe it out. Men, women, children, and, take, and don't take any of their possessions, you know, not, not to plunder it. I don't know about you, but when you read that today in 2019, doesn't that kind of bother us a little bit? Well, I will probably address this in a later sermon too at more length, but for now, for the sake of time, keep this in mind that that God was not calling them to do ethnic cleansing per se, like some nations have tried to do, because we'll see some of these pagan people and families actually come to faith in God. So it's not like God is against them coming to faith. No, the purpose that God had for them in doing this was spiritual, He knew that if if they allowed these Canaanites and Perizzites and otherites to remain in the land, then they would be influenced towards idolatry and away from God. That was the main reason that he said you need to go in and completely destroy. Don't even plunder it. Just take the nation. Take take the people and totally wipe them out. You know, I was thinking back to the book of Genesis. We kind of did a quick sketch of biblical history. When God had called Abraham, he made a prediction that his descendants would be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then it says the reason that he's doing this until, until the sin of the Amorites has reached their full measure. Do you hear that? So the Amorites are part of the Canaanites whom they're taking out. So God was so patient with all these people that he is um, having them drive out and wipe out. He waited over 400 years for them to become more sinful and more sinful and more sinful till God's like, I've had enough, 400 years, enough of it you can finally go in, Israel, and wipe them out. So God is way more patient than any of us would be. Let's talk about success now. If you have questions about that, come see me afterwards. I'm sure we'll address it again. Let's talk about success. I have three statements. Number one, success is only found with whom? The Lord. As we think about defining success for us and for others and as a church, it is only found with the Lord. And we see this illustrated clearly in military victory after military victory, because if you look at verse 2 and 3, it said, the Lord had answered, Judah shall go up. Um, I have given the land into their hands. So the men of Judah, they talked to the seminaries, come with us. And then in verse 4, when Judah attacked, the Lord gave them into their hands, and they struck him down. Or in verse 7, this pagan king, Adonai Bezek, recognizes that it is God's Judgment coming upon him for cutting off his thumbs and big toes. He is getting what he had done to others. Or if you skip down to verse 19, it says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country. And even if you skip down to verse 22, now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So time and time again, the author is telling us that if they're going to have victory, it's only if who gives it to them? The Lord. Yes, they're called to be obedient, but ultimate deliverance, ultimate victory, ultimate success is found only with the Lord. But let me add to the statement a little bit more. Because we're going to see that uh, there's some problems. True success is found when you fully surrender, fully depend on the Lord, fully trust in the Lord. So not partially, not half-heartedly, not in a compromising way, but fully. Say that word with me fully. So look back at our text for a second. We've read verses 1 to 19a. We've got more to go. But look at our text. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor. Can you find any examples that things are not as they should be? That even though Israel's obeying the Lord, they're not fully following him? So go ahead and turn to your neighbor. Introduce yourself if you need to. And take about 15 seconds. I know this is quick. Can you find an example of them not fully following the Lord? All right, go. All right, five seconds. (laughs) How many are having a hard time coming up with something? (laughs) It's challenging. Because at first glance, it seems like everything is just roses. Great. (laughs) But if you look at it carefully, look at verse 2. The Lord had answered that Judah, that tribe, shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. So back in verse 1, they asked, who of us is to go first? God's like Judah. But look at what Judah does in verse 3. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come with us, help us, we'll help you. And while that may seem like a great show of teamwork and unity, I think Judah is not specifically obeying exactly what God told them to do. They were to go up first. They were to go up into the land, but I think they were kind of having a little bit of an insurance protection that the Simeonites can come with us. So God still gives them victory and they're obeying him halfway, but I don't think fully. Or even in verses six and seven with the big thumbs and the big toes, you know. I guess our thumbs aren't called big thumbs, they're just thumbs, but you know. They chase this guy down. They catch him. They cut off his thumbs and big toes. And this pagan king recognizes it's from the Lord. But, but really what the Israelites are doing here, this is a form of pagan justice. This is not the kind of justice that Israel was called to do. They were to kill this guy, technically. Not humiliate him and mutilate him and take advantage of him. They weren't exactly following what the Lord told them to do. So even now we have seeds of destruction that are going on. if They're not fully following the Lord. Now, there is somebody who does fully follow the Lord. Did you catch it? Caleb does. Othniel does, who will be a judge in chapter three. And also, Aksa does. Because Caleb's like, I will give my daughter to anyone who, who does, takes this city. And Othniel says, I'll do it. And so in faith, he goes and he does it. Just like Caleb had faith to believe that God could take the promised land, so does Othniel. He has faith too. He fully trusts and surrenders to the Lord. And also, his um, Othniel's, oh, excuse me, Caleb's daughter, Axa also has faith by asking her dad for more of an inheritance, give me more fields, give me more um, water, more spring so I can water the fields. And so this actually is presented as somebody who is fully trusting and surrendering to the Lord. So if we go back to statement number one, success is only found with the Lord, but really you could say fully following and fully surrendering and trusting the Lord. Not that we won't ever make mistakes, but that's where success is found. Well, let's keep reading. If you would stand with me as we keep reading, because we got to 19A. We're ready for 19B (laughs) and following. (laughs) Here we go. I'll start at 19A, though. It says, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from their plains because they had what? Chariots fitted with iron. So they had better weaponry. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak, Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. And now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spy saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. And so he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family." He, this guy, then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. Now, that may seem like a random story. Like, what is the point of that? I think think what Judges is telling us is that these tribes of Joseph are way more committed to this man they just met and to honor him than they are to the Lord and to follow him. Verse 27, it gets worse. But Manasseh, another tribe, did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibleam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun, another tribe, drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulon did subject them to forced labor. So, so what are they failing to do time and time again? They are failing to drive out the nations completely. It gets worse, verse 31. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Acco or Sidon or Alab or Akzeb or Helbar or Afik or Rehob. By the way, I'm not totally sure how to pronounce those. You just got to be confident when you go for it, you know? So a little, little hint for biblical reading in the future. But they did not totally drive them out. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali, another tribe, drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. So it's actually getting worse. Where before it was saying the Canaanites were living among them, now it's starting to say that the Israelites are living among the Canaanites. And then it gets even worse, verse 34. The Amorites, that's a Canaanite tribe, confine the Danites, an Israelite tribe, to the hill country. So the Danites aren't even being successful, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Harris. and Aijalon and Shalbim, But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. And then it says, this is really a cryptic detail, the boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. So, so instead of the author describing the territory of the Israelites at the end, it's describing the territory of the Canaanites, their enemies. So you may be seated now. This takes me to my second statement on success. Partial obedience to the Lord may look successful at times, but it ultimately does what? It fails. Partial obedience, partial trust, partial surrender may look successful at times in your life, but it ultimately will fail. I mean, if you just read chapter one overall, yes, there's some concerning things, but you would say, you know what? The Israelites had more victories than defeats. They did pretty well overall but they are compromising along the way. They are not fully following the Lord's instructions and fully obeying him and fully surrendering to him that he can actually drive out these people. They may look successful outwardly, and even some of them started to put these tribes as slaves and subjected them to forced labor. Maybe they even you know, justified it by saying, you know what, if we, if we get slaves, they can do all the dirty work that we don't want to do. But that's not what God called them to do. Here's how one biblical scholar says it. These Canaanites are like buried landmines waiting to explode spiritually in their lives. Their gods, if they follow the ways of the other gods, it will explode. Let me keep reading. You can stay seated. I want to read five more verses. Chapter two now, verse one, says the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, so the angel of the Lord is going to talk to them I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. And yet you have done what? What's it say? Disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim, which means weeping. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So if it wasn't clear in chapter one that they were being disobedient, the angel of the Lord confronts the Israelites and says, you are not following me completely. You are being disobedient. So if you go back to chapter one, for instance, in chapter one, verse 19 says, the Lord was with the men of Judah. Verse 19, they took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. So think about if you were an Israelite back in that day and age. I mean, it's like you're going up against tanks and you don't have tanks. They do. I mean, you could easily make that excuse. Well, they were tougher. They were bigger. They had better technology and weaponry. There's no way we can drive them out. But then we see what the angel of the Lord says, don't we? that you disobeyed me. So the Israelites probably have one excuse, but God's like, there's no excuse. You need to trust me. You need to obey me. You need to surrender to me that I can take that even if they have superior technology and weaponry. I remember hearing one pastor talk about this passage and he said, you know what? So many times we often give excuses as to why we can't do something that the Lord is calling us to do when really, more truly, it's we won't do it. Not that we can't, But we won't. But we get excuses like we can't. I mean, you can apply this in so many different ways in your life. I mean, where are you saying in your life right now that I just can't do this? God's calling me. I just can't do it. But really, if you're honest, we just won't do it. Let me give you a couple examples. Forgiveness. At some point in your life, you will struggle to forgive someone. And it is hard, especially the more grievous the offense, the harder it is and the longer it takes well, sometimes we say, you know, I can't forgive them. I just can't when in reality, we won't. I mean, I get that it takes the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do that. But even if you're struggling to forgive someone, are you at least open to saying, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling. I want to get there. Help me. I'm going to surrender my heart to you now so you can help me do this. Or think of another, another area of our life. Sometimes God calls us to do the right thing, but it's the hardest thing to do. Some of you can relate to that in your life now or in the past. And if you actually do the right thing like God's calling you to do, there's going to be major cost to you or your job or the relationship. And yet we give all these excuses. I just can't do it because it's just too costly. When in reality, God is calling you to do it. You just won't do it. Or think of sin. If we could be honest and see each other's lives, all of us here this morning, probably at some level, feel certain temptations and sins and struggles. And, and so many times we think, I just can't defeat this sin. And it's true, you can't on your own. You need the Holy Spirit's power, I get that. But so many times we just give in saying, you know what? I just can't do it when in reality, we won't. As you think about your life this morning, where are you struggling? Where are you partially obeying, partially surrendered? But God's saying, I want, I want you to fully obey me in this. I want you to fully surrender this in your job, or in your family, or in a relationship, or your finances? Where is God calling you to fully obey? Because true success is found in fully obeying, fully surrendering, fully trusting in him. I mean, this is true in every area of our lives. I saw the football game Friday night. I mean, would the coach like it if you were a football player, and and you as a football player said, you know what, coach? I'll halfway obey this next play. I'll halfway do what you said. No, he wants full obedience He'll chew you out and grab your face mask and let you know. Where do you need to fully surrender to the Lord? Let's go to statement number three. There is actually hope through all of this. I know that's hard to see, but statement number three says, we must repent to find true success with the Lord. We must repent to find true success with the Lord. If you are feeling the weight of some conviction this morning by the spirit, what I would say to that is praise God, because God loves the Israelites enough to send his angel to confront them in chapter two and say, you're not following me. This is reality. But he does it because he wants them to change. He wants them to repent, which means to turn from one way and compromising and turn to the Lord fully and finally. And I believe the Lord is saying the same thing to us. If you are caught in some type of sin or addiction, or you just, you can't do something, but in reality, you won't. The good news is that God is confronting us today and saying, you know what? There's hope. You can repent by the power of the spirit and turn to the Lord. These Israelites start to do it. They start weeping, it says. And then in verse five at the end, they offer sacrifices to the Lord. So they start to do it, but we really wonder if they fully do it because later on, all through Judges, they just always forget. But you and I have an incredible opportunity this morning that if we are struggling, if we are compromising, the good news is, is God is getting our attention. He has you here and halfway awake, hopefully, to surrender to him. And do you know how we actually and fully and finally keep surrendering to the Lord? We have to remember what God has done. So if you look at chapter two, verse one, The angel of the Lord tells him, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land. I swore to give your ancestors. This is who I am. I delivered you from that foreign power, Pharaoh. I sent the ten plagues. I sent the angel of death, and he destroyed all their firstborn sons, but not yours, because you were covered under the blood of the Lamb. Remember what I've done. Don't give in to these gods of the other nations who are traps and snares before you. Don't have a halfway committed relationship with me, the Lord says. Amen.